Okay, we're live. How you doing, everybody? And welcome to the John Riley Project. It's it's Wednesday. It's July 13th. I'm really happy to be with you today. This is going to be the corporate greed episode. We're going to break it all down. Inflation, high prices, gasoline, insulin, housing, car prices. I mean, we're going to kind of get into all of this in this episode. So, we welcome your thoughts and comments on the live stream. You can type them in on Facebook or on YouTube, and they'll appear right here on my screen, and I'll see them. I'll read your comments and questions on the air, and we'll make this a dialogue. We'll have some fun today, so welcome, and thanks for joining me. Uh, thanks for spending some time with me this afternoon. Um, like We're going to get into this corporate greed uh, situation. We're going to break it all down. Um, got an update a little bit on my happiness76.com website. It's an e-commerce site I'm building, and I got some interesting updates on it. And then I'm going to, at the very end of the episode, I'm going to have a big shout out to uh, a gentleman named Randy Wessler, who just completed a uh, cross-country bike trip, and I want to share my comments on that. So again, welcome, and thanks for joining us. So, all right, prices are up. I mean, we are seeing it. It's crazy. I think I just saw the inflation rate is 9.1%. Oh, my God. Uh, The price of gas is frequently over $6 a gallon, if not in the high $5 Per gallon, the price of electricity is going up. I mean, it's it's crazy. I mean, food, labor, um, everything is so darn expensive. And you're hearing all this reaction. Oh my God! It's they're these corp. It's corporate greed. I'm telling you, these corporations are just sticking it to us. These corporations are price gouging. They're raping us. We got to do something about this. This isn't right. So we hear a lot of this kind of commentary. But is it really corporate greed? And that's what I want to kind of get into here because, you know, let let me just set the table up front. I mean, I don't necessarily think it's greed. I mean, I think businesses are always going to seek an opportunity to maximize profit. And that's really why they exist. That's why their shareholders invest in them. They have a fiduciary responsibility to pursue profit. Um, and, you know, d- different, you know, the market, the conditions in the market may change a little bit, but ultimately that's what these businesses are doing. But are they going too far? Are they asking for too much money? Are they raping us? Are they, do they have us, you know, do they have us, you know, in a compromised position? Well, yes and no. Okay. I mean, let, let's, let's take a look. I mean, why are prices high just in general? I mean, think about it. There's, Massive high demand for things. Okay, we we have this. We have the COVID, uh, you know, the pandemic and all the lockdowns. So we're coming out of it. There's all this pent up demand. You know, we're going into the summertime. A lot of pent up demand to travel to vacation. You know, normally gas prices always go up as we go into the summertime months. Not just because of summertime travel, but also because of the more expensive, environmentally friendly gasoline blend that they do. In the summertime, um, there was a six trillion dollars of brand new money that they flooded the marketplace with. I mean, what the Federal Reserve, that was their strategy when they were dealing with the um, with, with the pandemic is they said, you know, we learned a lesson from the Great Recession 14 years ago. This time we're going to flood the market. And they did. And under President Trump. $4 trillion of new money was created by the Federal Reserve and then distributed 
to people all across the economy in the forms of corporate welfare and PPP loans and in the forms of uh, stimulus checks to get through the COVID pandemic. Increased unemployment benefits all came as a result of that. It was it was it flooded the market. All of that new cash. And then under Biden, we saw the same thing. It was maybe about 50% of the volume of Trump, only at roughly about $2 trillion. Um, in Biden's America Rescue Plan, it was a $1.9 trillion plan. It was all fun, uh, you know, fueled by freshly printed cash and, again, distributed throughout the economy, um, not to the same degree as Trump. But definitely a significant amount of new money flooding the market. That creates a tremendous amount of additional demand. Um, you know, so and then on top of it, for I don't know how long we've been going, we've had really low interest rates for decades. I mean, even now, the the mortgage rates are what, like 5%, which historically kind of sounds high. But if you really kind of broaden your scope of history – Mortgage interest rates were between 10 and 15 percent around 1979, 1980, 1981. I mean, I remember my family was dealing with a lot of that uh, in that particular time frame, and it was crushing. But, our, but, but, you know, even in the face of really high demand to borrow money, interest rates have been really low. And then on top of it, there's limited supply, right? We had the supply chain um, crisis. There's not as many goods that have been created. Um, there has been a worker shortage. So businesses haven't been able to be as productive. Um, you know, in many cases, there's less competition, which we're going to kind of get into in some of these cases. And then, of course, there are all the government shutdowns, especially here in California, where entire segments of our of our economy were were closed. I mean, it was illegal for a lot of these businesses to conduct business. Um, or if they happened to be one of the businesses that was legal, they were allowed to do business during the pandemic. In many cases, they had to do it with one arm tied behind their back. I mean, just ask any restaurant owner. So what's going on right now is we have massive distortions that are going on in the economy. We have huge demand and we have limited supply. And that is having a significant impact on the price of goods. So now the question is, is it, is, it really, is it really corporate greed that's doing this? Well, let's, let's look at gasoline prices as an example. Okay, so like we said earlier, like there's high demand, pent-up demand because of the pandemic. People haven't gone on vacation in a while. You know, in fact, during the pandemic – a lot of the, the national parks were closed during the pandemic, even though we knew that the virus couldn't be, you know, was really not dangerous at all when you were outside. You still couldn't camp in a lot of the national parks. So anyways, the end result is there's there's a lot of pent up demand to travel. It's summertime and, you know, there's a lot of people that want to get in their cars and drive. I mean, we normally see that this time of the year anyways. But it's it's kind of exasperated because of the pandemic. But then there's low supply. I mean, a lot of these refineries are, you know, the, the ones that are open are mostly running at max capacity. You think, well, why don't they open up more refineries, right? Well, th- I mean, imagine if you were a company that, well, first of all, imagine if you're an entrepreneur 
They want this says, hey, look at this. The ga- the price of gas is crazy high. There's a lot of profit that's available to us. Maybe I should jump in and we, you know, I'll get some investors together and we'll build a refinery and create more supply and kind of get a little piece of this action. And normally that would be a good thing to have more competitors um, and ultimately more supply of, of gasoline. But do you know how hard it is to to start up a refinery? I mean, with the regulatory demands are massive. The environmental uh, demands are massive. It's extremely hard to build a refinery. In fact, I don't know if there have been any new refineries built in the last 10 or 20 years. I mean, have there? And if there have been, it's been very few. But then on top of it, imagine if you are an oil company. Let's say you are Exxon or Chevron or Standard Oil, one of the larger oil companies. Would you be investing money in a new refinery? Given all of the rhetoric that we're hearing from politicians, I mean, President Biden said, he goes, and there's a quote of this, it's on YouTube. He said, I promise you, we are going to end fossil fuels. Okay, now say what you will about that from an environmental perspective and Frankly, from an environmental perspective, I'm on board. I mean, I drive an electric vehicle. I power my house with solar. I mean, I, I get it. But if if the president of the United States is basically saying they're going to shut down fossil fuels, do you think you're going to spend billions of dollars investing in a refinery? Probably not. Um, and imagine if you're in the state of California where Governor Newsom has said that – Starting in the year 2035, just 13 years from now, it will be illegal to sell a brand new gasoline-powered car. So, again, if you're in the state of California, if you know in 13 years your demand is going to really drop, and frankly, the edict has been set, you're going to start to see either a significant decline in demand for gas, but or definitely a, a, um, a, a slowdown of growth for sure. Would you invest in a new refinery under those conditions? No, you wouldn't. Not at all. I mean, it, w- it would just be difficult. It, w- it would be a foolish investment. If you know the customers for that particular product or service are basically going to erode not because they want to do other things, but because the government is going to make it illegal. So what are, what are these companies doing now? I mean, yeah, they're, I mean, I've never seen gasoline prices this high ever. I remember probably about maybe 18 to 20 years ago, gas prices were around five bucks a gallon. And they weren't like $6. But if you think about it in the terms of um, – the, you know, the, the if you factor in inflation and the and the dilution of the power of the dollar when it was five bucks a gallon in 2000, what, two, 2003, that was technically more expensive than it is today at six dollars a gallon. But I remember I had a big Chevy Silverado pickup truck and I had a 26 gallon tank. So if my tank was near empty and I wanted to fill it up. I mean, it would cost me like $125 to fill up your tank. And this was 20 years ago. And it would, the crazy thing was, is I would go into gas stations and, you know, swipe my card and the and the, the pump would shut me off at $100. You know, sometimes less than 100 we I get shut off. 
because they were afraid of fraud and exposure um, to people stealing cards and and um, you know getting this gasoline and then getting chargebacks on the cards. So the gas stations trying to protect themselves back then. It was crazy. I, I, I even remember we had a Honda Odyssey back then, and we had parked our car just for the afternoon. It was a kind of a weird deal. We we had the kids; they were young, and we were trying to move from one place to another for some kind of a a kid party, a kid sporting event. I can't remember what it was, but we had to leave our Honda Odyssey in a parking lot for about three or four hours on a Saturday afternoon. When we came back to get it, most of the gasoline had been siphoned out. It had, the gasoline had been stolen out of the car back then. Um, so. Yeah, the price of gas is really high now. But imagine, I mean, also think about it this way. I mean, when we had the pandemic and there were all the government shutdowns, all these stay-at-home orders, all the people working from home, I mean, there was a lot less people on the road. You remember when we were driving on the freeway and we're like, oh, this is amazing. There's like no one here. Um, in some ways, that was terrific. But ultimately, there was a lot less demand for gasoline back then. And so what did the oil companies do? Well, I mean, they shut down some of the refineries. It was a great time to do maintenance. You know, they slowed down the production of gasoline because they knew back then they were losing money. So if you're losing money, why would you keep producing product at a, you know, remember gas prices around that time were really low. What was it here in California? It wasn't it like, did it start with a two or did it start with a three? Uh, it was something, you know, in the high $2, low $3 per gallon range. But the, those companies were losing money. So what did they do? They said, well, we're just not going to produce it. And so they shut down some of these refineries. And then suddenly government flips the switch back on, opens up the economy, all this pent up demand, all this cash flooding the market. Now everybody wants to travel. And these refineries are like trying to get going. They're, they're trying to spin up. But meanwhile, they can't find workers, or if you can get the workers, they're a lot more expensive now. You know, that's a great thing if you're a worker. But imagine if you're trying to build a business. You're trying to kind of, you were, you were, you had to go to a full stop, and now you've got to build momentum again. And then you can't find truck drivers. That's going to be difficult. And then here in the state of California, now they're making it so I, I think it's illegal now for owner operators to drive trucks. Because of AB5, you know, because it's a that rule against contract employees. So it's now it's hard for these businesses to get employees, to get truck drivers, to get their refineries spun up. And meanwhile, demand is surging and the supply can't catch up. So prices are high. So businesses, these oil companies, I'm not going to say they're greedy corporations because they are. All companies, all corporations are going to seek to maximize profit almost all the time. That's what they do. That's that's their purpose. That's what their shareholders expect. Now, if if oil companies are just jacking up the price because they want to, you know, stick it to people. Well, if that were the case, then why didn't they do it in 2014? Or why didn't they do it in 2018? They didn't. (laughs) Why are they doing it now? Well, they're doing it now because there's all these distortions in the marketplace. In 2014, 2018, well, there were still distortions, but they were far, far less severe. But since we've come out of this pandemic, I mean, it's like a, 
you know, it's like a, this roller coaster of not just up and down, but twists and turns the way this economy has been kind of starting, stopping, getting squeezed, expanding. I mean, it's been anything but stable. It's been volatile. And so in many ways, they're just responding to market conditions. So I still don't really understand why. I mean, I I guess I do understand why some people call that corporate greed. But I don't know if they, they just see prices going up. They just see oil companies having record profits and they say, ah, it's corporate greed. But I don't know if they really understand the full dynamics of what's going on in the marketplace. And I think that's important to point out. I mean, what can you do about it? I mean, the classic thing you can do is drive an electric car. <laughs> that's what I do. I opted out. I don't use gas. Gas price, that's why I told you, I don't really remember what the gas price was during the pandemic because I don't pay attention. Now, lately, I have been making note of it, wondering how, how many stations are going to be up over six bucks a gallon. But uh, yeah, what, what can you do? The main thing you can do is you can respond to market dyna- dynamics. You can respond to incentives and you can drive an electric car. Like I said, I, I haven't bought gas for my car in years. I mean, I've been driving some version of an electric vehicle for 10 years. At first, they were plug-in hybrids. And then there was another version of a plug-in hybrid. I remember I had a Ford C-Max Energy. And then I had a BMW i3. Um, and now I'm driving a Hyundai Kona, all electric. Uh, the fine wife is driving a Tesla Model 3. Before that, she was driving a Chevy Bolt, Bolt with a B. And before that, she drove a Ford Focus electric vehicle. It was kind of a uh, one of those compliance cars. But still, we, we barely ever buy gas. I think the only time we ever do is when our kids' cars are here. But that's the one thing you can do. Right? Rather than kind of bitching and moaning that the corporations are sticking it to you, then what you need to respond, you need to play the game. That's what I'm doing. And I think it makes a great deal of sense. I mean, we've, we've even gone the extra step where, you know, some people say, well, if you get an electric vehicle, it's just powered by coal. I mean, you're just, it's not environmentally friendly. I mean, you hear that objection all the time, typically from people who don't know what in the hell they're talking about. I mean, here in California, if you are on the grid, there's, I mean, as far as I know, there's no coal that powers the electricity for San Diego Gas and Electric or Southern California Edison or Pacific Gas and Electric. I don't think there's any coal used in California. And if there is, it's very little. And the the primary fossil fuel that's used in California is natural gas, which of all the fossil fuels, that's probably the cleanest. But for us, what do we do? We power our electric vehicles with solar on the roof of our house, also responding to a market incentive Also responding to market dynamics, we took advantage of the opportunity. Not only are we opting out of gasoline, but we're opting out of a a, a good to a very significant degree. We're opting out of the electricity that we use to fuel or to power our home and to power our cars. Um, That's what we can do. I mean, companies are seeking their financial best interest and we need to be doing the same. So now what else? Um, Let's talk a little bit about insulin. This is the next thing. 
Um, you know, and we've been hearing this problem with insulin prices for a long time. In fact, um, insulin prices have risen over 50 percent between 2014 and 2019. So if you're a diabetic and you need insulin, I mean, this is a this is a critical issue. This is a potentially a life and death matter. Um, you need insulin. And when prices are going up. That's a problem. <laughs> and so now, you know, you, I mean, I was just looking it up and the cost for a vial of a vial of insulin. And again, forgive me, I, I don't know. I mean, I was just looking it up. Apparently, um, diabetics need between one and six vials of insulin per month. And these vials, depending on if you're buying name brand, if you're buying generic, et cetera, can range between $25 and $300 a vial. Now, take the extreme example. If you are a diabetic and you have, if you require six vials at the maximum 300, that's like $1,800 a month. I mean, that's, that's a lot. I mean, that's a lot, a lot, especially for some people that are just living paycheck to paycheck. That's just completely unaffordable. And so people are up in arms about insulin. You know, but, but why? Why does the price suddenly go up? Remember, we said about, we said earlier that gasoline prices, I mean, they could have jacked them up a long time ago. Why are they doing it now? Well, I say because of market conditions. Well, why has insulin gone up? over 50% between 2014 and 2019. Well, roll the clock back to 2014. What was going on in the healthcare market around then? It was Obamacare, right? So Obamacare starts, and now suddenly, you know, for a lot of people, they got a lot more insurance. And that sounds great, right? People got more insurance. Um, and, And never mind the fact that it's called the Affordable Care Act, and yet insurance became less affordable for people. For most people, their, their health care insurance went up in price. And they called it the Affordable Care Act, you know, kind of like the Patriot Act, which is completely unpatriotic. But, you know, you might think, oh, great, you know, now all this insulin is provided under insurance. That's terrific. But what happens? Well, now suddenly there's a lot more demand for insulin. And because the retail price is largely cloaked for people that are on that have insurance policies, in many cases they don't really care how much it costs. They just want to make sure that their insurance covers it. Maybe they'll pay attention to what their copay is, but as long as the insurance is covering it, they don't care what the pharma company is charging the healthcare provider for those vials of insulin. So you end up with not only high demand, but you end up in a situation where this is insulin, but customers are insulated from understanding the true price that they're paying. And so what does that do? That just incentivizes prices to go up. And then on top of it, there are only three, mostly three primary insulin manufacturers in the world. And what they've done is, roughly speaking, they've parsed up the globe 
in, I mean, I'm going to use sweeping generalizations here into, into three essentially territories. And each one has a dominant, is a dominant player in their respective territory. Now, granted, I know there's like some copycat insulins and some competitive insulins that are trying to get into the market, but it's crazy that there's only three primary manufacturers of insulin. And, and we all hear the stories, like the cost to make insulin is really cheap. I mean, the ingredients that are in that vial, I, I mean, if it costs high-end $300 a vial, the cost of those ingredients, I'm, I'm guessing, is like 10 bucks or less. I mean, there's potentially massive profit margins here. So why isn't there a surge of entrepreneurs that are entering the insulin market to produce more insulin, to take advantage of this opportunity? Well, it's because, because the FDA and the regulations make it so hard for companies to enter the market. Now, granted, it, it turns out that if you build your own pharmaceutical manufacturing plant to make the insulin, that's also expensive, too, to get started. But you would figure that if the profit opportunity was so significant that it wouldn't be that hard to find investors to all jump in. But the regulations that the government requires on insulin manufacturers are greater than the regulations that are placed upon companies that sell, let's just say, generic versions of other popular medicines because – Insulin is like a, a – what's the right word? It's a biology, a bioproduct, and therefore it has higher regulations to get into the market. And granted, the government has relaxed some of those regulations, but it's still excessive hurdles to leap over to get in. So these three primary manufacturers have been sort of sitting in the catbird's nest and really enjoying all this market share. But now what's happened? Gavin Newsom, Governor Newsom in California has said, we're going to make insulin. And I think he's, he's investing, was it like 100 million bucks? I think that was it. It was 50 million to start the manufacturing plant and then 50 million to invest in producing product. And at first I heard this, when I first heard it, of course, all of my progressive friends my friends on the left, they were fired up. And they were like, wow, this is great. Boy, those big pharma companies, they've been sticking it to us. And now Gavin Newsom's, he's doing something about it. Gavin Newsom's jumping in. He's going to fix this problem for us. This is great. And, you know, because generally speaking, our progressive friends like a very activist government. Now, never mind the fact that you stereotypically think of our right-wing friends that want less interference by government in the market, but really they don't believe that. <laughs> they want a lot of interference in the market, our right-wing friends. But in this case, our left-wing friends were so stoked. Yeah, Gavin Newsom's going to do something about this. This is great. You know, he's proactive. And, you know, he's a, he's a hopeful presidential candidate. He's probably going to run in 2024 if Biden steps back. And if he doesn't run in 24, he'll definitely run in 28. I mean, he's on, a, he's on a trajectory for the White House. Make no mistake about it. 
But I, I mean, I heard this, and while my progressive friends were super happy, I was thinking to myself, man, this is a friggin' disaster. This is the wrong solution. <laughs> um, and by the way, I encourage your thoughts and comments on the live stream. Feel free to type them in on Facebook and YouTube, and I'll read them on the air. Um, but I thought to myself, this is crazy. This is the wrong thing. I mean, right now, the state of California is trying to build a bullet train, and it's in the friggin' middle of you know the Central Valley of California where there's not really even in the population centers and it's over budget and it's, it's uh, way delayed according to the schedule. It's a complete and colossal screw up. You know, the voters went to the polls and they authorized bonds. I can't remember the dollar amount, but it was, it was whatever that dollar amount in bonds that the voters approved, they blew through that money right away. And then they needed more money and then they need more money. And they're, and they've only how many miles of track have they built for this bullet train? The California government is trying to build a passenger train and failing. And now they're going to get into the pharmaceutical industry. Come on. Now, granted, they say they're going to outsource it, that they're going to actually have, um, you know, a, a private company make this for them. And then maybe they'll private label it as, you know, Newsom insulin or something like that. But to me, there's a lot of problems with this. I mean, first of all, what is the role of government? Is the role of, I mean, this is a good question, I think. Um, what is the role of government? Should government be in the pharmaceutical business? Should government be in the passenger train business? Should government maybe refine oil? Maybe government needs to manufacture our food or, you know, be a food grower and distributor. Or maybe government needs to make television sets and computer monitors. I mean, what's the role of government? Now, in my opinion, the role of government should be to protect our rights to protect our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, to essentially act as a referee, not as a player on the field, but as a referee. So, you know, if someone is someone murders or there's a rape or there's theft, then government provides that process to hold those people to account. If companies commit fraud, government is there to police that. And there's a judicial system that is set up to Try them, hold them accountable, and, and put them in jail if necessary. Now, some would argue that on the state level, the role of government is more than that. It should be education. It should be health care. And, you know, we can go down that list. But where does that line stop and where does it start? Should government be in the, in the business of doing manufacturing pharmaceuticals? Now, again, I don't think they should. I mean, not only is it outside their scope. I mean, it's like... You know, when President Trump and Trump Enterprises created Trump Airlines or created Trump Steak or any of these other crazy things, when you shouldn't start businesses that are outside of your sweet spot. Um, you need to kind of stay in your lane and just be good at what you're good at. And my, that's my opinion for most businesses. And yeah, businesses need to be innovative. But this is kind of crazy. Now, a business, what they'll do is they will respond, as we said earlier, they're, they're profit seekers. Businesses are seeking to maximize profit. 
but a government wouldn't do that. Now, some people say, well, that's great. You know, we can take all the profit out of the system that those evil, greedy, price gouging corporations are charging for this. And we can make it available to the people at a much less price, much lower price, because there's no profit. Well, think about it. What's going to happen? And we've, we've, you know, we, we have a track record here. We have history. If you look at government involvement in other aspects of the economy, like in the case of healthcare, what ends up happening is, is that, and I'll just use an example. So, and I'm going to make up some numbers. So let's just assume that for the sake of discussion, that the price of a vial of insulin at a retail level is um, $200, okay? And let's pretend that it costs $50 to produce it. Well, a company is going to, you know, sell it for 200, make it for 50, and they've got an extra $150 there per vial they can use to pay for their employees, pay for their overhead, have some profit left over for the investors. And then if something happens, if the price of their labor goes up, if the price of, um, you know, if, if certain circumstances change in their business where their expenses go up, then they can, if they choose, make adjustments to their retail price in order to maintain and, and, and have the proper, you know, flow of profit. And then there, and at the same time, in a private market, they would be operating in a competitive marketplace where, they can't charge too much because someone else can easily swoop in, sell it for a lower price and take market share. So there's all that competitive pressure to keep prices down. But now imagine if government got involved and government said, well, you know what? Rather than selling it for $200, if it only costs us 50 bucks a vial to make it, we'll sell it for 50 or maybe we'll sell it for 60 just to cover our additional expenses. Well, what happens when labor prices go up, when other circumstances happen where their costs go up. And now, in order to break even, this government venture needs to sell it for $100 a vial, $150 a vial. What are they going to do? Well, remember, if it's a government organization, they're not driven by the profit motive. They're going to be driven for, by political objectives. So what they're going to do is they're just going to keep the price really low at $50 a vial, even though it costs them 100 per vial to produce it. Because they want to follow through on their commitment for the people. But then who ends up paying for that, that delta? Who ends up having to make up their loss? Well, they just redirect it to taxpayers. And then taxpayers have got to take it on the chin. And we see that all the time now. We're seeing that in Medicare. We see that in a lot of other cases where when government is running a program, we see that in education too. When government is running a program and they're not really driven for on, on a really a fiscally prudent, a fiscally disciplined model, then they're going to make decisions on what is going to get the most votes for those politicians. And then if it costs more than that, they just dump it on the taxpayer. And then on top of it, you're out, if, if, if California is producing this insulin, they're outside of their sweet spot. They're in a, a marketplace where they have very little understanding. I just see this as to be as a disaster. What they really should be doing, what they really should be doing is just making it easier 
for entrepreneurs to enter the market, making it easier for new competitors to enter, lowering the regulations. If they did that, we would see some success. Now, granted, a lot of those regulations are set in D.C., not in Sacramento, but you know, Newsom wants to do something about it. But I think in a lot of ways, this is as much a campaign issue as it is a real serious initiative, but we'll see. But in the end, businesses respond to market conditions. They respond to incentives. That's why prices for insulin are high. Insurance fuels that process. Patients are insulated from understanding the full retail price. Demand is increased. Prices go up and there's limited competitors. So the problem isn't corporate greed per se. The problem is, is that the government set up the playing field to be completely distorted. Now, let's, let's take a look at one more, one more case. Let's look at automobiles. Oh, my God. Have you been on a, on a car lot lately? I did a podcast probably about two or three months ago because I was shopping for a new car. Now, I drive a Hyundai Kona electric vehicle, great car, and I lease it. Um, I lease it um, as, as a expense within my business. And it's great. It, it, you know, I, I get like almost 300 miles of range on, on, a, on a single charge. Um, it's enjoyable to drive. It's fun to drive. Got a lot of bells and whistles and technology in it. Um, love the car. But my lease is coming to an end. And I didn't know what I was going to do. So I decided to go out and shop around. I went down to, um, you know, I went down to Poway Hyundai. It's called Peddler Hyundai now, or Pedder, I think. Pedder Hyundai on Poway Road. Because they've got the new Hyundai Ionic 5, which is the new hot electric vehicle from Hyundai. And I wanted to take a look at it. And they said, yeah, we can get you that. But they're on order. And we're asking, I think it was like 7000 bucks above MSRP. Like, holy crap. You know, usually you go to an auto dealer and you negotiate for a price that's below MSRP. Here, they were asking seven grand over MSRP and they were getting it. And there was a a waiting list to get these cars. I'm like, holy moly, I'm not prepared to do that. So the other electric car that was of interest to me is the Kia EV6. Now that's kind of the sister uh, company of Hyundai. And this electric vehicle technology platform that they use for the Ionic 5 at Hyundai, they also use for the Kia EV6. So I went down to a Kia dealer, went to one of them in El Cajon, and they they had the car on the lot. It was $15,000 over MSRP. Holy crap, I couldn't believe it. Um, So I started, you know, talking to people and learning more about it. And you think, oh, these are just evil auto dealers, price gouging, corporate greed. That's what's going on here. But not really. So right now there's high demand for electric vehicles because the price of gas is so damn high. Right. And at the same time, there is limited supply. Why is there limited supply? Because of the um Pat Johnson on the live stream. You need to be looking at the lucid air. Yeah, I'm looking at a number of other vehicles. Um, 
and there's so many new EVs that are out that are really exciting. Um, and I have seen Lucid, Pat. I, I mean, that one might be a little outside my price range. I'm looking for a more economical model, but um, I'll take a look at that a second time. But, you know, the reason is that the prices are so high for cars is because of the supply chain mess. And the supply chain mess is because of the semiconductors. There's not enough. They're not producing enough semiconductors for cars. And we know how modern cars are so dependent on electronics, on computer chips, compared to, as Pat would know, as compared to a lot of older cars that, you know, your, your average Joe could do a tune-up on. You can't do that anymore. We think, well, why is, there a, why is there a shortage of semiconductors? And some people say, well, yeah, supply chain crisis. But why is there a supply chain crisis? It always comes back to government policies every time this happens. So what happened is, is during the pandemic, they, you know, especially here in California, they had economic shutdowns. Man, if you were in certain business categories, if you operated a fitness gym, a, a, a theater, if you were in the hospitality industry, hotels, I mean, they guys got shut down. Restaurants at times were shut down. Malls were shut down. Huge portions of the economy were shut down. And what happened? There was also stay-at-home orders. People were required to stay home. They were not allowed to, especially in California, you were not allowed to leave your house unless you had a legitimate reason to leave that was approved. You had to be going to go to a doctor's appointment or going to the grocery store or, some, or going to a job that was, uh, that was legal to go to. So what ended up happening is, is a lot of people started working from home. And what did you do when you work from home? They made investments in things like what I'm doing here in my podcast. They had cameras and webcams and microphones and people were doing Zoom calls. And there was suddenly a huge demand for that technology. You go on Amazon, try to buy a webcam about a year and a half, two years ago, you couldn't get one. And if you did find them, just like with cars, they were selling them for two or three times more than the MSRP for a webcam. And these were crappy webcams, not like the good one, like the Logitech Brio. So what ended up happening is, is that, you know, these kinds of things set signals in the market. Remember, companies just respond to market dynamics. They respond to incentives. Suddenly, these semiconductor companies are saying, oh, my God, no one's buying car, car chips anymore because you weren't allowed you mean, in some cases, you weren't allowed to drive, but mostly people weren't driving because of the pandemic. Economic shutdown, stay-at-home orders. People stayed at home, stay-at-home orders. And at the same time, while there's no demand for chips for automobiles, there is huge demand for chips for consumer electronics and webcams and microphones and everything for these stay-at-home workers that are doing Zoom calls all day. And plus the kids were doing it for school. And I mean, the whole market was massively distorted because of these government policies in reaction to the pandemic. So these computer chip makers said, okay, well, we're going to make these chips and we're not going to, you know, we're going to make the chips for the webcams. We don't need to make the chips for the cars. And so then there's less cars being made. And now we have a supply chain crisis because of the distortion created by the government policy in the first place. 
So that's what's going on. That's why the price of cars is so crazy. And so I was talking to the guy at the Kia dealership, and he said, yeah, look at my lot. He goes, I only have six new cars. Six, that's it. And and the rest of the lot was, you know, there was a, it was mostly, you know, partly full. There were a lot of used cars there, but used cars, you know, they're getting big prices on that. But if you look at it from the perspective of the dealership, well, they have like a monthly nut they have to hit. I mean, with their their um, property, you know, building lease, their employee um, payroll, their benefits. I mean. The electricity to keep the lights on. I mean, every business sort of has a set of fixed costs, a monthly nut that you got to get over the hump every month to keep the business viable, to keep it open. And if now suddenly when you were selling 100 cars a month, now you're only selling 15 or 20 cars a month, how in the hell can you make that monthly nut unless you increase the price of the car, in some cases as much as 15 grand over MSRP and people are buying it. People are signing up and there's a waiting list to get it. Then of course they're going to keep the price high like that. And I don't think we're going to see any sort of a relaxation of this until maybe next year. I mean, it's just a disaster. So are these auto companies, are these auto dealers greedy? Are they price gouging? Well, not really. I mean, they just want to run their business profitably. And when there's high demand and minimal supply, well, then, you know, any Econ 101 class will teach you that that causes prices to go up. And that's what we're experiencing now. So I still don't know what I'm going to do about my car. My lease actually expired in April. And then they said, you know, you can extend the lease month to month, but for only a maximum of six months. So I've got like three months left and I've got to figure out what I'm going to do. So I don't know if I'm going to buy a new car and pay above MSRP or if I'm going to buy a used car and pay a hell of a lot for that. Or I could just buy out my lease, which is probably the most economically prudent thing to do, but that's no fun. <laughs> I want to get a new car. Um, then the other alternative, I've even been toying with the idea. I'd like, what are, I wonder if it'd be possible to go for a period of time without a car. What do you think of that? Um, maybe using Uber a lot. Um, maybe getting, you know, riding my bike around town if I need to run an errand, like I need to go down and check my mail at the Postal Annex next to the Target in Poway. Um, or maybe even getting one of those e-bikes. Could I do that? I wonder. I think about that. Could I do that for like six months, nine months, until the automobile market sort of relaxes and then make a wise choice at that time. I, I don't know. I might do that, but I don't know. Maybe I'm getting a little too old for, for that. I'm not sure. But I have to do something. And this is a terrible time to buy a car. And I'm kind of stuck. Uh, but again, I think buying out my lease is, yeah, from, an, from a, a fiscal angle alone, it is the no-brainer decision. But as much as I love my car, I, you know, I, like I said, I've been driving EVs for like over 10 years um, and I always lease them through my business. And so it's always nice to get a new car. You know, you kind of get you excited and fired up for it. So I still don't know what I'm going to do. But it, yeah, it's a rotten time to buy a car. So, so I, again, I think, you know, we're titling this podcast Corporate Greed. 
I don't think corporations are greedy per se. I mean, think about it, you. When, if you're like, now is a great time to sell your house, right? I mean, it probably peaked uh, a few months ago, but now is a great time to sell your house. Well, when you sell your house, are you going to try to get the maximum dollar um, in the offer? Well, of course you are. <laughs> you know, you're going to try to get the most you can when you sell your house. Because that's the, the market dynamics. There's great demand for housing and there's limited supply. There's very limited inventory. Talk to any realtor. And that's causing prices to go up. There's bidding wars. People are making, are, are selling their homes for twenty, thirty, fifty thousand dollars over MSRP, or not MSRP, but over asking price. So if you're selling your house, you're going to try to get maximum dollar. Does that make you greedy? Does that make you a price gouger? Does that make you an evil SOB? I don't think so. I think you're just responding to market conditions. And I think that's what these corporations are doing. Um, <laughs> Pat Johnson on the live stream commenting about the idea of going without a car for a short period of time says, no, you could not, brother. We are too old and set in our ways. Laugh out loud. And then Chris Sohei on the live stream says, no way. Car manufacturers will allow a cool off period. I would get a new lease ASAP before it gets more expensive. But the price of the lease on a new car is ultimately based on whatever the negotiated retail price of the car is. So if, like example, if I were to get the Kia EV6 that has an MSRP of over $15,000 over, over the MSRP. Or if I got the Ionic, um, the Ionic 5 from Hyundai, which is about 7000 over MSRP, well, that's what they would calculate the lease price on because that's the market value of the car. So, yeah, it's a terrible time to get a car now. Just awful. Um, now, like I said, are, are corporations price gouging? Are they evil SOBs? Are they greedy? I, I don't really think so. Um, but I, what I will say is this, is that corporations, like, like they're in, a lot of these corporations are in cahoots with government, right? They're the ones that will lobby government officials to pass laws, pass regulations to block competition. Now, that is a problem. Now, we're we're seeing that, remember, in the whole baby formula crisis. Remember, we had a shortage of baby formula because one of the plants got shut down and, and they weren't allowed to import it because it was against the law to import from a lot of European countries, including com- countries like Germany and the Netherlands and Ireland that had FDA-like regulations that were probably the equivalent, if not stronger than America, in, in countries where most people consider the food supply to be way more healthy. And- it was illegal to import from those nations. Even the recently renegotiated NAFTA, what do they call it now, CAFTA or something like that, they, you could import a limited amount of baby formula from Canada, but it was only a certain amount and then it got cut off. And it was because the dairy industry in the United States had so, uh, had so worked over the politicians and bribed them to set these regulations to block competition. That's the problem. So that's like I always say, we need to deregulate this economy to open it up for more supply, more dynamism, more entrepreneurship, more innovation. 
But the minute you say deregulation, people think you want to poison the water and poison the air. And you're like, Jesus, you know, the reason there's limited competition in the insulin market, the reason there is limited competition in the baby formula market is because of these regulations. So that's the problem. And, you know, and then plus all the distortions with COVID, um, all, I mean, it's the whole market's been twisted. Inflation's what, 9.1%. And oh my God, don't get me started on college tuition, which is also has been experiencing inflation for years. <laughs> but why? Again, same problem. Um, there's excessive demand and limited supply. Um, excessive demand in terms of um, more kids want to go to college. I think when I went to college back in the 80s, only 20, 25% of high school kids went to college then. Now it's at least 50%. And then all these federal loans make money so easily available for these students that they're willing to spend money to go to these top universities or even some mediocre universities they'll pay big money to go to. And then are they building a lot more universities? Well, there are some small private ones that are being built. But look at the University of California. When's the last time they built a new campus? They built one in Merced probably, what, 20 years ago. That's it. Now, granted, they're trying to expand them. But they're expanding these campuses to get more students. But they still can't keep up with demand. I mean, at my alma mater at UC San Diego, the demand is so high that it's, there's a huge housing crisis on campus pushing a lot of students, including freshmen, off campus now. And they're having to kind of fend for themselves in the housing market, which in and of itself is a mess for all the, the non-students. It's just a whole disaster. Uh, Pat Johnson on the live stream says, there is a difference, though, John, between selling my house and trying to get the most out of it to build up my reserves and a corporation raising prices on cars instead of using reserves to help pay their bills in a crisis. Well, I mean, yeah, it's a different situation. I mean, it's a, you're a private person, you're selling a house. A corporation's trying to sell their product or their service. Yeah, I mean, that, that in and of itself is different. But in both cases, the home seller or the car seller is trying to maximize their position. They're trying to seek the best opportunity. And if market conditions are such that they can get a higher price, then they're going to take it. And then the same is true otherwise. If market conditions are such that car prices are really cheap, well, consumers are going to respond to that incentive. They're, like when gas was like three bucks a gallon during the pandemic, people didn't spend $4 a gallon and gave three to the gas station and then sent a dollar per gallon off to Exxon Mobil just to make them feel good. They didn't do that. People respond to incentives. And individuals, when we sell a house, yeah, we want to build up our reserves for our retirement to pay for our kids' college education or whatever it is. And then companies are trying to do the same. They're trying to build up their reserves, which is ultimately cash that they, don't, uh, that they invest in R&D or that they distribute in the form of dividends, or they use to pay their employees, pay their executives, or sometimes they use it to do stock buybacks. And people think stock buybacks are these evil things that corporations are doing. 
Not really. I mean, when a corporation is doing a stock buyback, they're betting on themselves. They think that their company is going to do really well in the future. And what they end up doing is releasing all of their reserves into the marketplace, the cash cascading through the marketplace. The sellers of those stocks suddenly have money in their hands. And then we actually see trickle-down economics (laughs) for real, as it always usually works that way. It's funny. I mean, back in the Great Recession time, companies were sitting on big piles of reserves and they wouldn't spend it. And it made a lot of my progressive friends on the left very angry. But now when they spend it, (laughs) my progressive friends on the left are still angry because they're spending it on stock buybacks. Um, That's a whole other topic. So, So anyways... You know, there's all this rhetoric. It's corporate greed. It's price gouging. I don't think so. I mean, companies are going to seek their own rational self-interest, just like you will as a buyer, just like you will as a seller. And people and companies are just reacting to market conditions. Now, we can criticize the companies that are in cahoots with government to distort and rig the market for their advantage. That is worthy of criticism. You know, when they set up regulations and, and barriers of entry to enter a marketplace, so it's really hard to get into the insulin market that or the baby food market. Now, that's a legitimate criticism, in my opinion. But otherwise, yeah, they're just responding to market conditions. Just like during the pandemic, they were losing money. Again, responding to those market conditions. Okay, um, I do, I do want to do two small things before we finish here. I want to talk about happiness76.com, and then I want to talk about Randy Wessler and his cross-country bike trip. Okay, let's talk about happiness76.com. Now, one of the things I'm doing in this podcast, now granted, this is the John Riley Project, and maybe you think of it as a podcast, because that's the name of the podcast. This is episode number 280 of the podcast, by the way. Kind of proud of that. Um But the John Riley Project is much more than just the podcast. So I've been trying to find ways to integrate other things into this. So I've got blogs and I've got a website and I've kind of integrated portions of my business into it as well. But what I really am trying to do now is I want to monetize the podcast. But it's that's hard to do. I mean, if you're Joe Rogan and you've got hundreds of millions of listeners, then, yeah, you could you can make big money. But I, here I am, a uh, little guy of the podcast and here in Poway, California, and I'm very thankful for the listeners and viewers I have, but admittedly, I don't have a giant audience like that. So I can't really sell advertising. And if I did, I might get an advertiser for a few episodes, and granted, they're only getting so much exposure because my audience is so small, probably aren't going to stick around. So what am I going to do? So I decided I was going to create a e-commerce store to sell products and services that are aligned with my overarching kind of inspiration, my uh, greater cause, our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so I experimented um, and created you know, this store called happiness76.com, and I built it on in WooCommerce. I don't know if you're familiar with WooCommerce. Here's two primary e-commerce platforms. There's WooCommerce and there's Shopify. And so I did it in WooCommerce mostly because it's free to set up your store. And then I built it in WordPress and my website's in WordPress, so it was easy. 
And, um, you know, and you can get the plugins with Stripe to manage your credit card processing. But the store itself in WooCommerce was kind of clunky. And the, one of the benefits of WooCommerce is that you can really customize it, especially if you are a serious developer. And granted, my degree is in computer science, but I haven't done software development in years and years and years. And I wasn't sure I wanted to go back in and learn all that. And I had limited time because, you know, I have my own day job and I've got my family and my other interests. And then I like to do this podcast. And I was thinking, I, I want to just do something simple. So I did the Happiness 76 and I got, you know, got some orders and I was very happy. Pat Johnson, you purchased one of our shirts. So thank you for that. Um, but then I decided, you know, I'm going to I want to get more serious about this because I I created some of my own merchandise. I created some of my own T-shirts and coffee mugs and things. Um, and and it's, it's a system called print on demand. And I work with Printful. There's a company Printful, P-R-I-N-T-F-U-L dot com. And you can create artwork for a T-shirt. And then they will as you they get an order, they will print it, package it and ship it. So you never touch it and you don't have to buy like, you know, 10 dozen shirts and have them in inventory. They print them one at a time as they go. So it's pretty sweet if you're an entrepreneur and you want to have your own merch, you don't have to make this huge investment in product that you aren't sure if you can sell or not. And so a lot of, a lot of podcasts, a lot of other people in the media, when they have merch, they're essentially doing something similar. Um, so I had Printful and I had it organized with WooCommerce and it functionally worked. And I was proud of that and had some business, but it was still small potatoes. So what I've decided to do is I, I, I migrated that store from WooCommerce to Shopify. And oh my God, is it better. It is so much better. If you are going to build an e-commerce store, definitely use Shopify rather than WooCommerce. I mean, Shopify makes everything so much easier. Um, they've got kind of all of the infrastructure built into it, not only to make it easy to build your store, but all of the credit card processing is built in. You don't have to have a third-party plug-in. It's all factored in. Um, all of the integration with uh, Facebook and a lot of other platforms to do paid ads is fully integrated. Um, in addition, the products can be optimized so that they appear in Google Shopping, which is wonderful. So, you know, like if you ever do a Google search and before you get to your results, you know, usually above your organic results are your paid ads. And that's pay-per-click advertising that people do with Google. But if you're looking for a specific product, sometimes above the paid ads, you'll see these like little square photos of products and you'll see that product and it'll be at five different stores and it shows their price and people can click on that and they can buy it. Well, that's Google shopping and Shopify is integrated into that and it makes it really easy for your products to show up there. So now I'm kind of trying to optimize my store and get it going. And I'm really excited about this. And so my plan is that I've now migrated all my printful products from my Woo store to my Shopify store. So I've got like 20 something products there and I got t-shirts, you know, cause you know, I'm all about 
life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So I've got the pursue happiness t-shirt. I've got the my body, my choice shirt. I got two of them. I got one that's more feminine, you know, mostly for abortion, my body, my choice. But I also have one that's kind of more masculine, you know, for those that objected to the, uh, the mandated vaccines. And then I've got a shirt that says, you know, because remember I talk about the Declaration of Independence all the time, you know, all men are created equal. Well, I've got one that essentially says all genders are created equal. And rather than in, you know, like they have those icons for genders, usually like when you go to the the restroom, there's a male and a female and the woman has a skirt, kind of looks like a superhero with a cape. But there's all these other versions of those for all the different gender um, versions that exist. So I created that in a shirt. It's kind of cool. So it's like all genders are created equal. Um, I've got um, other shirts, you know, for things that I like to talk about. You do you and believe in yourself. And, and so I'm really happy about that. And I even have some, I have another store that sells electric vehicles and I, um, it sells, sells electric vehicle charging stations. But now I'm thinking about taking my EV merch and merging it into happiness 76. Like I've got one that it says ACDC, like like the rock band ACDC, but in the middle, rather than a lightning bolt like the Bon Scott, um, uh, why am I, uh, Angus Young, <laughs> you know, rather, rather than the lightning bolt in the middle of the ACDC logo, I have a, an EV charging station, you know, so, and I've got some other electric vehicle shirt designs that I have on another one of my websites. I'm going to bring those into Happiness 76. So right now it's all kind of um, print-on-demand stuff. So I'm, I got the shirts. I'm, I got coffee mugs. I'm going to start building out water bottles. And there's a whole bunch of other product you can make in Printful. And you just got to design the art. And so um, I have artists that I work with. In some cases, I do the art myself. And, and boom, you got products. Pretty cool. And so I'm now the, – the next step for this is once I kind of get the Shopify store really optimized – then I'm going to start looking for third-party product that I can add into this. Um, and these might be, you know, it's all this drop shipping model where you get the order and then you place the order with your wholesaler. The wholesaler packages it and ships it, and then you never touch it. Um, so like Printful, there's other kinds of drop shipping companies. So I'm going to do that, but I'm going to probably look for more product that – Again, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. So I'm going to probably be looking for product that kind of fits that Americana theme. Um, because, yeah, you know, the Declaration of Independence, America, a lot of that is the inspiration for this podcast. So there's a lot of cool Americana stuff. You know, Pete Neal on the live stream, um, he says here, you and I have to talk Shopify and see stories. Yeah, we will. Um, but you know, like imagine like Route 66. I mean, Pete, you know all about Route 66. That's like Americana. I mean, that's the vibe, that American classic culture. You know, I remember when I was a kid, we used to, there was a TV commercial, baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and Chevrolet, <laughs> which was kind of cool. But yeah, baseball, hot dogs, and apple pie. I mean, that's Americana. So picket fences and statues of liberty. And so all of, you know, Coca-Cola and Pepsi and Levi's and a lot of these classic American brands, I'm going to try to find product like that and blend them into Happiness 76. And then the plan after that is tend to really aggressively promote the store. And then, oh, by the way, there's a podcast that's linked to the, the store. And I think if I can do this, 
then I think I have a fighting chance to make this a, you know, a viable little business. Um, and, you know, as I get into my retirement years, which are just around the corner, um, then I can uh, maybe have this as a nice little income stream. And so that's what I'm kind of hopeful for doing. And and then, you know, if all goes well and we're doing that, then, you know, I, I, I could see taking this John Riley project in a lot of other directions. Um, public speaking, perhaps, uh, writing a book, um, putting together courses and the like. There's a lot of different things I can do with this. So, uh, but for now, the podcast and my, my small but very loyal audience, and I thank you very much for being part of this. But at the same time, you know, I think this Happiness 76, I'm now kind of getting more serious about e-commerce and I'm excited about it. Okay. Um, oh, by the way, if you go on the store now and you use the offer code you do you, Y-O-U-D-O-Y-O-U, you do you, 20% off all shirts and free shipping for orders of $50 or more. So not bad. Um, so I'm just trying to give you incentives, market incentives to react to and respond to, um, to make it interesting and worthwhile for you. Um, okay. Last topic. Wow. We're already in an hour and eight minutes. Um, Pat Johnson says, uh, just checked out happiness76.com and, and love it. I will be buying some stuff soon. Pat, thank you. Appreciate that. You know, um, one of the things a lot of podcasters do to you know try to monetize it, they ask for donations. And I, I, if you go on my website, johnreillyproject.com, you can make a donation if you wish. But I'd rather almost provide a product for you that you enjoy, that has a message that you, you love and support. And then, oh, by the way, that's how you can support the show. That's win-win. But if you want to make a donation, you can go to johnreillyproject.com and do that as well. Okay, the last topic is Randy Wessler. Okay. This is front page story um, on my local newspaper, the Poway Chieftain. If you go to pomeradonews.com or if you go to San Diego Union Tribune.com slash Pomerado hyphen news, this is the top story. So this guy, Randy Wessler, who, by the way, I know him. Um, I worked with him and I'm going to talk a little bit about that. He, uh, he lives in Rancho Bernardo. He's 58 years old and he's retired. You know, good for you, Randy. Um, he rode his bike cross country from the Pacific Ocean to the Atlantic Ocean, 3,272 miles. And he did it to raise money for juvenile diabetes research. This is friggin' awesome. Th- this is amazing. I mean, Wow. I mean, imagine that, riding your bike cross-country. I mean, just think of I – mean, I, I actually – I should invite him to be a podcast guest because I'm sure he saw the craziest things on his, on his ride. I mean, he was out there interacting with people all across America, dealing with the elements. I mean, he's probably got crazy stories to share. But wow, what a, I mean, what a, a feat. What, what a remarkable accomplishment. What a great way to build your self-esteem, feel good about yourself for something that you did that's so amazing. And oh, by the way, you're raising money for juvenile diabetes research. Good on you, Randy. Right on. So I I was reading the article and I'll have a link in the show notes. And Randy um, has been, and I didn't know this when I, I, because I worked with him like about 20 years ago, 
But apparently in the last 15 years, he's been really into endurance sports. He's been doing triathlons. I should hook him up with my daughter. My daughter has done Ironman triathlons. Um, but uh, he's, he's done uh, triathlons, long-distance running, long-distance biking. And so he made this like a big project at his retirement, and he rode cross-country. And here's a great quote. And this is a money quote right here. He says, I'm amazed at what I can do, especially if prepared. Yeah, you're am- that's the thing is, man, is that we're better. All of us, we're better than we think we are. We can do amazing things. Sometimes we just don't have the confidence in ourselves to do it. But he said, yeah, if I'm prepared, I, I, um, it's amazing what I can do. And Randy Wessler, 58, said of his cross-country bike rides that often covered 70 to 100 miles per day. His trip began on April 20th at Torrey Pines State Beach and concluded July 2nd at Manasquan, New Jersey. Man, that's freaking great. Uh, you know, talking about pursuing your happiness – that's that's it right there. He's doing what he loves. He's challenging himself and and emerging victorious. He is doing it for a worthy cause, but more importantly, he's doing it for himself. Ah, what a great story. So um I worked with Randy. Now, this was I think uh yeah, I think it was like 2002 through 2003 or no, 2002 through 2004. I used to work for a company called Hart Hanks Market Intelligence. And uh, this is a direct marketing company, Hart Hanks. And this division of the company, it was here headquartered in San Diego. And it was called the Computer Intelligence Technology Database. And it was really cool. Is this, the company had built up this database by interviewing corporations all across America and asking them what kind of technology do they have installed at all of their locations? Like how many, you know, PCs do you have? How many tablets? Um, what's the operating system of, you, you know, your, your server? I mean, they asked all those technical questions. Um, and then they would ask, you know, who's your director of information technology, who's your uh, data processing manager, you know, finding out who all the decision makers are. And this became very valuable data for people in the technology market to target ideal customers. So you could, like, for example, if you made a product that was competitive with a Cisco router, you could find all the companies in your territory that had that Cisco router, and then you would get the name and contact information of their IT director so that you knew who to, who to, to call on to provide a better solution. So this database was fabulous. The database, they even asked questions in the survey. In the next six months, in the next 12 months, do you plan on making a major investment, upgrading your computer system, changing your ERP or CRM system? You know, a lot of great lead generation uh, that was provided here. Well, back then, Randy was, I guess, I think he could say he was the, he was one of the two primary vice presidents and he was in charge of the product database. That was his baby. And I'll tell you what, he did a great job. I mean, they, that, that product was, was great when Hart Hanks acquired it and it got even better with Randy at the helm. Um, I was on the other side. I worked for the other VP. Um, I was like a sales operations uh, director. And so I did a lot of 
lead management, lead generation, a lot of different things to kind of fuel the pipeline of our salespeople. But I worked with Randy all the time. He's a great guy um, and very smart, very, very intelligent man, a very good manager. Um, and then the crazy thing is, is that I went off and started my own business and uh, in, in, the, in the world of direct marketing. And then, you know, circumstances with the economy, everything else, Randy ended up working for a company called DataQuick, which is here in San Diego, and, uh, like a real estate database company. And I, I assume he had a similar position there. And then I was a customer of DataQuick. So kind of cross paths with him there. And I've always known he's lived here in Rancho Bernardo, but I've never really had a chance to say hello to him. Uh, and now suddenly I see him on the front page of my local paper going 3,272 miles cross country on his bicycle, a project that started on April 20th and concluded on July 2nd. Oh my God. So that's like what? 60, that's like 70, 75 days um, going, you know, 75 to a hundred miles a day. Well, I don't know. Maybe it's less days. Maybe he took some days off on the trip. He can't probably can't do that every single day. Uh, but wow. What, I mean, so tip of the hat to Randy Wessler on your amazing accomplishment. Um, I think it's awesome. I think it's the beauty of it is it's it's kind of consistent a little bit with what we do in this podcast, celebrating personal achievements, um, celebrating you pursuing your happiness, you doing great things in your life, you flourishing in your life. So bravo, Randy Wessler. All right. Wow. Hour 16. Love this. Thanks again for watching. Thanks for listening. Hey, if you're still on, you know, you're watching the live stream, thank you. Thanks for sticking with us. If you can give it a thumbs up or a like or a love, that's really helpful. Helps us in the algorithm so that we can kind of rank higher, get a little bit more exposure. That's always very helpful. Um, so um, I'll be back at you next Wednesday. I missed last Wednesday. Um, just wasn't feeling very well. Uh, but I wanted to do a 4th of July or Independence Day podcast, and I missed the opportunity. And I'm kicking myself. So uh, I'll definitely do an Independence Day podcast. And you know what I want to do on the, on the next Independence Day is I want to read the Declaration of Independence and go through it line by line and comment on it. Cause I think it'd be very interesting. Um, and you know, I'll, I'll save that for 2023 and we'll do that then. Okay. All right, friends. Thanks again. Uh, this is the John Riley project episode number 280. We'll be back at you next Wednesday, the 20th. Um, I've got a potential guest lined up, and I'm not going to say his name because I don't want to jinx it, but uh, get those lines lit. That's a, that's a hint. All right, friends. We'll see you later. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed today's show, do me a favor. Subscribe and then share it with a friend or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let's continue the conversation on social media. Go to connectwithjohnny.com to get links to our social media content, audio podcast platforms, and to sign up for our mailing list. To be a guest, read my blog, or get more information, please visit johnreillyproject.com to get started.